This is episode 129 with Caleb Campbell. Welcome to The Athletic Mindset. I'm your host, Corey Camp, former Division I swimmer, forever athlete, and your personal flow coach, helping you optimize your life one conversation at a time. Today, I'm joined in conversation with Caleb Campbell, West Point graduate, Army veteran, ex-NFL linebacker, keynote speaker, podcast host, and all-around awesome human being. While his resume is filled with accolades and accomplishments, Caleb and I discuss deeply the things we often don't see on the highlight reels or the social medias. See, in the middle of Caleb living out his childhood dream of playing in the NFL, he began to self-destruct, eventually leaving his dream to figure out what is his life beyond being the biggest, the fastest, and the strongest guy on the field. We speak a lot into the power of vulnerability, being open, and surrendering today in today's episode. Caleb's story is a captivating one filled with many nuggets of information you can start implementing into your life today. So let's get into it. Caleb, first and foremost, man, welcome to the Athletic Mindset Podcast. I'm excited to jam out with you today. Bummed you're not in LA. We can't do this in person anymore, oh. but we make time for Bro, it anyway. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I would give anything to be in that SoCal weather right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fly you out. We'll hit pause. Uh, on oh, that. my gosh. How how are things in Nashville? Feeling good? I know you mentioned yeah. energy kind of brought you out that way. Yeah, for the longest time. Well, I wouldn't say for the longest time, but I would say a year and a half ago, my wife and I were in Nashville visiting some friends and we were driving from Nashville down south to Franklin. And we kind of looked at each other on the highway. And at the same time, we kind of said like, this feels like home, doesn't it? And I didn't want to accept that at the time because I was still in LA and we were still living in LA. And in my heart, I didn't necessarily feel like LA was over mm. or that I was done with LA yet. And so from that moment until this past February, just a few months ago, when we actually did move, there was this kind of a long dragged out season of grief and resistance, grief and resistance, grief and resistance. I knew that I was kind of letting go of Los Angeles. I knew that my time there energetically was shifting and it was changing and the grace was kind of lifting on my life. I don't think there's anything more debilitating and more frustrating than being somewhere where you're not supposed to be, but trying to make it work. Mm. That shit will take a toll on you real quick. And I kind of felt that grace lift on my life. And Kara, my wife, she was all for us. She's like, let's get out of Los Angeles. Let's go. I'm ready to go. She's been there for nine years. I was only there for three years and I couldn't help but to feel like leaving Los Angeles when I felt like I was time to leave. I felt like a failure mm. because I think we kind of moved to Los Angeles with these expectations of how we think our life is going to change or what we think our life is going to look like. And all of these unmet expectations were weighing heavily on me. And to walk away from Los Angeles with these unmet expectations, it made me feel kind of like a failure. And so a lot of grief, but man, on the other side of it, creating space in my life and my heart to allow that grief to have its way and to move in me and through me. It's really just opened up my heart space to experience life in an all new way here in Nashville. And I kind of, I say this often, I'm not in a derogatory way, but Nashville's slow. <laughs> you know, it's slow, but it's been so good for us because you, you kind of have to ask yourself at some point in time, is it, is it really about the hustle or is it more about avoiding stillness in life? You know, is it really about the hustle? Is it more about avoiding stillness in life? And when I got to Nashville, the stillness of Nashville, the slowness of Nashville really allowed some things that were deep down in my heart to begin to surface things that I have not yet been able to, what I would call like radically accept and allow to alchemize from pain into light. 
and here it, we have been giving myself the permission and the space to do that. And it's kind of opened up our lives individually and as, uh, as a couple. So it's been real good. Long answer to your quick question. <laughs> no, I, I love it. We're just flowing and, and diving right into the deep end here with the conscious awareness that you have first and foremost. I just got to acknowledge you for it because it's, that's something that, you know, drew me to your content and drew me to reaching out and asking you to come on the show is like, all right, this dude has a level of awareness that I think I'm just scratching the surface at. So selfishly, I would love to learn from you <laughs> in that sense. And it's funny, I we were just talking before this, like I just moved to LA yeah. under the premise of like, I have expectations of what I'm mm. trying to build, whether it's the podcast, whether it's the company that I'm running. And it's like, I feel like LA is right for that for me right now. Similar to how you felt with Nashville visiting last year. I felt that way coming out here. Mm -hmm. Things just clicked and, and we're flowing. And I think it's really important to just highlight, like, it could be right for that chapter in your life. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's the entirety of your life. Just like mm -hmm. sports can be, you know, the perfect vehicle or playground for you to help discover your identity and who you are. But it doesn't have to be the end all be all like this what is what defines you, which I feel like is, you know, great part of your story is obviously growing up in football, playing in the league. But then you also had this unique experience of going to West Point and having what was that like with because that was you were one of the first players out of West Point what yeah. drafted in 10 years, 10 plus years at that time. Second player in the history of West Point to be drafted and the first actual given, <laughs> given the permission to go and play. And yeah, that was just such a, a, a surreal season of life because at that time of my life, you know, you think of the most or the least emotionally aware person you've ever met in your life. And I'll, I'm that person. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm so full of hurt, so full of pain. You know, shame is the driving force behind my life. This deep, innate fear of being exposed and seen as somebody that doesn't have what it takes was so wildly and deeply scary to me. And so in a lot of ways, anytime I felt exposed and like anytime I felt like you were about to see who I really am, you know, rage, mm. that was my best friend. And I would use my anger and my rage and my physical stature to regain control of any situation. And so life in that season throughout West Point was so just erratic. You know, it's very erratic. And on top of that, you know, I'm, you know, my sophomore year, I'm the sixth rate of strong safety and college football. I'm at the end of that year. So all the college scouts start coming around and asking, uh, or NFL scouts start coming around and agents start coming around and asking like, what's the deal with Caleb? If he in, ends up on somebody's draft board, like what's the deal? And so my sophomore year at West Point, the, uh, the United States Army created this thing called the Alternative Service Obligation Policy. Mm -hmm. And essentially it said that whenever a cadet athlete has the possibility of playing a professional sport or if they have a professional contract, they are able to actually pursue a professional sport and also serve simultaneously. And so that got kind of issued uh, my sophomore year. So I go on my junior and senior year and, you know, get through and end up getting selected in that, in that year, 2008 NFL draft. And it was just such a surreal moment of like, when you have longed your entire life, to belong, mm. but you yet have not learned how to belong to yourself. So no matter where you are, no matter how much you do, you still feel like this square peg trying to fit in a round hole. 
right? You still feel like a foreigner in your own skin. And I've lived like that my entire life, ever since I was a kid and especially in high school, just never feeling like I belonged anywhere. And now suddenly I get drafted and I look at my phone and I have 400 text messages and all these calls and like, you know, every reporter trying to call me. And I'm like, oh my God, I've been searching for this long. I've been searching for this, this measure of acceptance and belonging my entire life. And, you know, it was crazy because I remember driving home from Radio City Music Hall back to West Point because I had an exam that. The next day. So there was no celebrating getting drafted. <laughs> and it, it was a moment inside of that car where it was just so fleeting, where that feeling of belonging and that feeling of acceptance, like I felt it. And as soon as I felt it, it was gone. And it was replaced with this fear of, holy shit, what happens if I'm not enough? Mm. You know, what happens now? The whole world is watching me. The whole sports world is watching me. My story was just documented on national television at the draft, all this stuff happened. And I felt this immense pressure just begin to suffocate me of like, oh my God, this isn't me going to the NFL. This is me now risk being exposed that I'm somebody that doesn't have what it takes. And, you know, that night I went back to my room and that was the first night that I've ever experienced a panic attack. Um, just woke up, couldn't catch my breath. I literally thought I was dying. I had to crawl to the bathroom and turn on all of the community showers basically to try to drown out my cries, mm. you know, drown out my sobbing. And that was just kind of a, a reckoning for me because I got caught in this, this liminal space, this tension of like, oh my God, my life has just radically changed. Everything that I was looking for is here now, but now I'm living in this, this void of, holy shit, what happens if I'm not enough? Oh my God, what happens if I don't make it? And that just began to suffocate me. And so, yeah, I ended up getting draft or in playing, but the, on my first day of my NFL career, the day I was supposed to sign my NFL contract, I get a phone call from the Department of Defense and saying like, damn, that that policy that was going to allow you to play and no longer exist. And you have to report back to active duty immediately. Mm. And Corey, when I tell you, like a lot of people were like, oh, you must've been bummed. Oh, that must've been so hard for you, bro. I was ecstatic. I was so thrilled because I knew, I knew I wasn't going to make the team. I played better football when I was in sixth grade. So I knew I wasn't going to make the team. And now I just kind of got this get out of jail free card. Right, where I didn't have to be exposed as an athlete or as a man that doesn't have what it takes. I had to go back to the military and serve for three years. And that's when I kind of made kind of this mental commitment of like, okay, you got three years to get your shit together. You know, so I did what every athlete knows how to do. I got bigger, faster, and stronger. Mm. Right. I try to outperform my fear. I try to outperform my shame. I got bigger, faster, and stronger. And I told myself, all right, this is it, man. You're in the best shape of your life. You're fast. You're strong. After three years of serving, I did everything I needed to do to make sure. And I'm literally the best shape of my life. And I get back to the NFL, got an opportunity to sign with Detroit. And I remember my first day on the football field, I realized like, holy shit, as soon as I stepped on that field, I puked everywhere because that fear didn't just hit me, but it hit me like 10 times stronger. And I suddenly realized like, I'm part of my language, but like, I'm fucked. Mm. Like... Everything that I just did, hoping that I could get bigger, faster, and stronger to outrun this fear, to outrun this shame, I realized it was not enough. And I kind of in that moment knew, holy shit, like I'm fucked. I like the, oh, I like the analogy, the picture that you're painting here. Mm. I don't obviously have to hear, you know, but what I'm envisioning is 
and I see it time and time again, we're not addressing our heart and really what that is trying to tell us and what it wants. Mm -hmm. And we're so busy, especially in the athlete culture, military culture, like packing on more muscle, packing on, you know, like let's pour things on, on top of our heart and that will protect (laughs) it. But it sounds to me, I mean, at least now in your life, you've made a shift where you've allowed Mm. that heart to express itself and Mm. have space to do so. How did you go about navigating that though? Because I've the culture at the time, I mean, we're talking what, 08, 2010, like mental health and listen to your heart voice was definitely not like top (laughs) newsworthy headlines. You know what I mean? You're, you're probably making waves in the locker room. People are scratching their head, looking at you funny. If you're saying, yeah, my heart's telling me I need this today. I'd be like, all right, dude, I think you need to watch some film and bench press. (laughs) How did you navigate that? Because I think it's tough, obviously being in an environment that's not allowing you to express your authentic true self, Mm -hmm. but you need Mm -hmm. the ability and the space to express that to perform better. Yeah. Catch 22 there. Absolutely. And I will have to say that my time in the league for those next two and a half, three years, whatever it was, I had no idea that I needed to tap into my heart space, right? Like I had, I didn't have the emotional awareness, understanding why I was experiencing this onslaught of mental health challenges, right? I didn't understand why I was feeling, I don't even know if I would say that I knew I was experiencing an onslaught of mental health challenges. This is how far removed I was and disconnected from my body. And disconnected from my life. And essentially, throughout those three years, I self-destructed in the most unimaginable ways. I lived in this tension between wanting to be good enough to play on the practice squad, but not actually good enough to play on Sunday. Like I might have been one of the only players in the NFL that I, I didn't want to play on Sunday because if I played on Sunday, I risk being seen as somebody that doesn't have what it takes. And that just terrified me. Mm. And so I try to be in that, in that sweet spot. Because if I could be in that sweet spot, you know, I could still be part of an NFL team, make a living, go out and have fun and be seen as somebody on the NFL team and find that deep need and satisfy, temporarily satisfy that deep need for acceptance and connection and validation in very toxic and unhealthy ways, but it was still momentarily satisfying. And so I knew that like I was, you know, coming up short. I knew what I was doing. Like I was aware that like, holy shit, you're not giving it your all. You're playing it safe. And I didn't know why. And I hated myself for that. And so I started just this vicious self cycle of the self-fulfilling prophecy of like, I hate myself, continue to do it. I hate myself, self-destruct, continue to do it. I hate myself. And it's just this repeating cycle. And I got kind of to this point where it's like, I wanted to be done with football. I wanted a way out, but I didn't have the courage to quit because up until this point, what you kind of referenced earlier along, like this is not just a game of football. This is my lifeline. Mm -hmm. This is the way that I find acceptance and validation and approval. This is my belonging system in the world, right? This is my dreams to walk away. Like, what would that say about me then? Like, what would people think about me then? And so I didn't have the courage to quit. And so I kind of got to this point where I was either going to self-destruct to the point of where I'm being forced to quit. And I woke up one morning after... um, Didn't really wake up. I never went to sleep. But I had this moment of after partying... And just being like, if something doesn't change, it's only a matter of time before my life is over. It really is only a matter of time before my parents get a phone call 
notifying them that their son is no longer with them. And that's when, I don't know, man, I I believe in this understanding of like the grace Mm -hmm. of God or the universe, because I just had this deep knowing that when I walked away from football, I went to West Point, I had incredible job opportunities, but I knew that just taking a job and acting like life, like nothing, nothing happened. And I'm just going to move on from this. Like I was just going to recreate another football in my life right? The next job that I took was just going to become another NFL where I reached this level of success. And then the pressure got too much. The fear of being exposed hits me again. And next thing you know, I start to self-destruct all over again. So I had this deep awareness, call it what you want to call it. I just call it the grace of God because that wasn't me because I am the least emotionally aware person at this time. And I just knew that I had to walk away from everything and go discover who the hell Caleb Campbell really is. What are the driving forces behind my life? What is this fear that suffocates me? What actually is happening in the deeper parts of me, right? Like I I did everything I could to follow the rule book of life that I had been taught and it landed me here. And I'm so-called living the life, but I'm literally one thought process away from ending my life. Something's got to change. And so, man, I, long story short, uh, Corey, I was in my aunt's basement. I had just, no joke, opened up my third bottle of wine, pretty drunk, like, you know, playing this self-pity game. What the hell am I going to do with my life? What happened? Hating myself, hating life, mad at God, you name it. And I'm scrolling through Twitter and I don't know what it was, but I scroll through Twitter and I saw this series of tweets from a church in Canada that suddenly for the first time in my life, as I'm reading through these tweets, I'm, I feel seen. I feel known. Somebody put language to my inner turmoil, my inner chaos. Somebody finally helped me make sense of it. And I was like, holy shit, this is my life. Man, in that moment, I feel like there's this divine encounter with love. And I sobered up and I instantly knew that that's where I was supposed to be. And I literally went from playing in the NFL to packing my car, driving into Canada, walking into a random church saying, hi, my name is Caleb. You don't know me, but I feel like I'm supposed to be here. Can you help me fix my life? And they said, yeah. And that's when I basically moved into a, a church, slept on the basement floor of a boiler room, became a janitor of a church for about five years of my life so that I could begin the trauma focused therapy that would radically change my life. Almost at a loss of words, man. It's, um, it's a beautiful journey. And it's funny looking back how these mm. moments in our lives play out oh, yeah. perfectly. Yeah. But obviously when it's happening, it yeah. can feel like a living hell. And it is a hell though. Yeah. This is what people have to understand. And this is where we don't we don't do a good job at putting language to this for people. There is a metaphorical death that's happening. Mm-hmm. Life is always inviting us to into a deeper, more expansive, more real, more satisfying, more fulfilled, more purpose-filled experience. But it doesn't come first without a death, a metaphorical death, whether that death is walking away from a relationship, the death of a reputation, the death of a job, or whatever it might be. And what we haven't done a good job with, and this is what I'm really passionate about, is how do we create the emotional space in our hearts and our lives? And how do we deploy the emotional skills that are needed to travel between those two worlds? Mm -hmm. Because that's liminal space, right? This life that I no longer serves me, but the new has not yet appeared, and I'm in between somewhere, that shit's scary. Yeah. 
right? And this is where the athlete's mind does not benefit us because in the liminal space, willpower is our enemy. We can't perform our way into a deeper, more expansive life. We have to surrender our way. Yeah. And willpower, willfulness, the enemy of surrender, right? Because oh, there comes a time in our lives when moving our lives forward is not about doing more, but learning how to resist less. Yeah. I, I say it a lot of learning to just be. And that's mm. something that I've personally struggled with. Um, it's as simple as that. And it's yeah. as hard as that. It's as complex <laughs> as that. And, but I think too, to your point, right? Like growing up in the athletic environment and culture and the societal pressure that comes with that is this constant external push of, okay, well, if you're not running routes or if you're not like taking extra hits and doing this on the days off, then, you know, that guy over there, the number eight, you know, prospect in the nation, yeah. he's getting better than you. And that yeah. gap between the two of you guys is just increasing. And if you really want to have value in your life, you're going to need to work a little bit harder. And what I hear in your story is like that opportunity that the army gave you to hit pause for a second. Mm-hmm. was almost like the universe's first opportunity to be like, Hey, look, man, like mm-hmm. get okay with this space of just experiencing and just being, and it was like, all right, yeah, I'm not going to really listen to that. Like, I, I'm going to work to get bigger, faster, stronger. And then the universe came back and was like, hey, man, like, I tried to teach one. you this. Here's <laughs> another one. You're not getting it. You're yeah. not getting it. And um, let me be clear, too, because I think there is a place to get bigger, faster, and stronger. Mm-hmm. I think our willpower is essential. Like, we have to learn how to... This is the balance between the masculine and the feminine, yeah. right? We need to show up. I One of my favorite quotes from uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower on outside of Blake Field at West Point when you run onto the football field, it says, on the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that upon other fields on other days will bear the fruits of victory on the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that upon other fields on other days will bear the fruits of victories. And what it's saying is like that resilience, that grit, that persistence and perseverance that are all natural or necessary attributes for you to succeed on the fields of friendly strife, the football field, basketball court, whatever it might be. Those are the same intrinsic qualities that's going to help you carry on in life. So there is this beautiful balance between the masculine and the feminine that we have to learn. We've just really learned to find our value in the masculine. We've learned how to find life in the masculine and we're not comfortable with the feminine because the feminine is all about flow, surrender, letting go, right? And that's that's like that's scary because we haven't been well trained in that but there is a beautiful balance a marriage of the two that has to happen for us to actually i find to really coexist and co-partner with the god of this universe and to create a life of flow that we are absolutely finding to be most fulfilling right and so there is it is a necessary like i often say take that willpower and that willfulness as far as you can take it but at some point there's going to come a time when you just can't keep moving forward And you need to recognize and reframe that season of life because if you think about it, like we are inundated with, you know, the 10 steps to create a dream life. We're inundated with just do this, try this, do more, right? But there comes a time when we can't move forward any further. Like we're fucking tired. 
Yeah. Like we're tired. And so you've suffocated that willfulness. Now this is a, a reframe that needs to happen because your natural instinct is going to be like, Hey, I just failed. Oh my God, I'm not enough. Right. Oh my gosh, whatever it might be, you fill in the blank. Right. But we need to reframe this and this and see it as like this beautiful opportunity of like, we've just exhausted our willfulness. Now this is a doorway for us to begin to implement the willingness to posture our heart in this seat of willingness to let go. The willfulness is the masculine. The willingness is the feminine, right? And so now we learn how our life can move forward by surrendering, how our life can move forward by letting go. And this is a beautiful marriage of life. That is our life journey. Yeah. I think it's important to make that distinction, especially for athletes, that surrender does not mean giving up. No. And that's that's where I think a lot of that initial resistance mm-hmm lies is we have this connotation that surrender means it's out of my control yeah. like whatever i'm giving up and we're taught to your point yeah. of like let's keep pushing onwards we are gritty we have all these other attributes but you can surrender without giving up by just allowing to take a sec back take a step back and look at the bigger picture of like okay i was <laughs> to your point earlier of trying to fit in the, the crowds that you quote unquote didn't fit in with if you took a second to just pause and pivot whether it's changing you know listening to who you are a little bit more or changing the environment that you're plugged into you're surrendering to the flow of life by doing so mm-hmm. instead of absolutely like resisting <laughs> trying to resist that you know yeah. what i mean you know and i think what you said it, it well like surrendering obviously is not giving up but usually The hard part is that oftentimes in the dance of life, we find ourselves in these moments of like, for me, am I supposed to walk away from football or am I, is this like resistance that I'm supposed to push through? Am I supposed to walk away from the relationship or am I supposed to stay in it because I'm going to heal more and learn more about myself, right? There's not black and white answers oftentimes for the bigger decisions of life. So what do we do? We rely on what we're comfortable with, what we're familiar with. And that's usually our willful attempts to make our life happen, to hold on, to work harder, to be more, to achieve more, to go harder, whatever it might be. And so this is why it's so incredibly important that we learn how to heal and reconnect to our bodies so that we can live from our heart space. Because inside of those big decisions where it's gray, It's not as clear as we might think it is. The healing journey, what it does for us, because I can't tell you that you're going to follow my same suit. I can't tell you that you're going to make the same decisions or just do this or do that. You have to do what's right for you. Mm. And it takes a lot of work to get back to our heart space, to stand in the intersections of life in that gray space and be like, this is what my heart's telling me to do. I need to go. I need to walk away. Walking away is me succeeding in this journey. And we can only actually own those decisions and find the courage to trust those decisions if we have done the work to re-enter and to live from our heart space. Not to live from our head, but drop from our head to our heart, integrate the two and to live from our heart space. And this is why the healing journey is so important Mm -hmm. as athletes, right? Because now we get to this point where we are on this hell-bent mission to expand our lives, but we're going to expand our lives consciously. And when we don't, because when, when we don't expand our lives consciously, that's when we lose ourselves in the process. And I'm sick and tired of seeing athletes. I'm tired of seeing people at large reach their goals, but lose themselves in the process. 
And this is how we prevent that from happening is learning how to reconnect to our body, reconnect to our heart space, live from this deep truth, make hard decisions and trust that our life is being held. Because I think sometimes in life, like it's not about making the right decisions, it's about finding the courage to make a decision. Mm. And that opens up doors in our life. I lo- absolutely love that. And I'm with you. It's it's frustrating and heartbreaking seeing the stories that come out all too often of, I mean, XNFL or, you know, whatever that sport may be, weight of gold. I'm in the swimming world myself. So weight of gold really hit home for me, that mm-hmm. HBO documentary yeah. of, the ex- of everything. And it's really heartbreaking to see because... To your point, I think, yeah, the solution is having the courage to make a decision to go down this conscious path. How have, one, how did you get okay with going down that path? And then two, how do you think as an athletic culture, we shift to that being more acceptable rather than this taboo thing that it has been for years? Because I think it is shifting currently as we speak, but it's still not quite at the the level that it needs to be to make a larger impactful change. How do you see it shifting? I'm curious. I think like Naomi Osaka, for example, being able to withdraw from the French and just say, hey, you know, like mentally, I just need to take a Mm -hmm. space. And I'm seeing this conflict and resistance that pops up with said decision coming from a lot of athletes are are speaking up and have her back like a Kyrie Irving or what mm-hmm. have you. But then on the other side of things, you have the, the sports purists, traditionalists, especially a lot of, in the media that are saying, I get it, but like you're being like, this is your job. Like you should yeah. be showing up and playing. So I, I, that's why I say, I, I think there is a shift that is there happening. Is. Yeah. And there's just now a lot of resistance, but for once now there's, people are noticing like they're not on it alone, which Mm. ultimately is, I think the most powerful. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I do think that there is a shift. I think what happened with this pandemic collectively as a people of the world of the, like this collective massive shift, I think it's just, it's really just, what are the, like, what's the words? It's made us just realize that, you can work hard your entire life for something and the moments in moments is just gone. Mm-hmm. And if we don't know how to hold pain consciously, it can destroy us. And so I just think that there has been a shift, a collective shift of realizing what's most important of understanding that, you know what, take your performance. I'm going to go find my heart, you know, understanding like the, though that. There's a bigger story being told here and it's more than just scoring touchdowns. There's a bigger story. And I'm sorry if you're not going to be able to live vicariously through me like you once were, but how about you go find your own heart too, guy? You know, like <laughs> this is what's happening. And so I do think that there is a collective shift. I do think that it, it, it's happening. And I think the best thing that we can do is A, as athletes, as people who are in that, in that journey to stop pretending. Stop pretending that you are something that you're not. Stop pretending that you're somewhere that you're not. Stop pretending and live an emotionally honest life. Do the work. And maybe that is terrifying for you because your entire life, you've been taught that vulnerability is weakness. Your entire life, you've seen fail or you've seen giving up as failure. Whatever it might be, just stop pretending and give yourself the space and the permission to get 
deeply curious about life, like, and to ask yourself, is there another way? Is what I've been taught to be true about life and how I see life true? Or has this been what has been passed down from generation from generation? And it's actually embedded in pain and unprocessed pain that's just now been projected as a mirror onto my life. So there has to be this willingness to stop pretending, to get deeply curious about life, and then just to open yourself up to the endless possibilities of what could be. And then if you if you are someone that's willing to go down this journey, the best thing that we can do, I think, to shift the narrative is to live our own truths. Mm. And when the time is right, to be vocal about it. And I say when the time is right, because I think that's important because I don't think in the age of storytelling and now vulnerability turned into a performance, mm. right? We undermine the healing journey. We've deeply undermined the healing journey. And I do think that there is, you know, I, I'm not a spiritual guy or I'm, I'm a spiritual guy. I'm not like a church guy, but there, it's interesting when you even look at the, in the, the book, like, biblically, when you look at scripture, we have written record of Jesus when he was up until he was 13 years old. And then we have complete silence from 13 to 30. And then he reappears on the scene when he's 30. There are 18 years of silence. 18 years of not talking about his life. 18 years of not posting on their social media. You know what I'm saying? If you think about this, right? And, and metaphorically, what's powerful about that, I think there is a journey of like, oh, I'm going to go inward and I'm going to live my truth. And I don't need to talk about it right now because I'm in the thick of it. I need to do what I need to do to really create a new, a new measure of homeostasis of emotional safety in my heart space so that I can, so that I can expand my life. I, I digress here, but I'm yeah. just saying, I think what we can do is we can live our truth. We can open up and talk about it when it's right. Because when we open up and talk about it when it's right, we give inevitably other people the permission to do the same. Yeah. And I think that timing right piece is huge and that, I mean, like all of this, only the individual has that answer. It's not like there you, go. There you, you, you go. and I can can't sit exactly. here and be like, yeah, after eight weeks of you doing the work, like you're ready to share your yeah. journey or whatever. It's going to look different for everyone. I mean, that's what I love about your journey of you know going up north and kind of just quote unquote doing the work, you know, humbling yourself yeah. and shifting the whole narrative. Our mutual friend Joe Holly doing you know, mm. the road, the road life, you know mm. what I mean? There's, I think there's a reason why people yes. are drawn to these things. And unfortunately, I feel like we have to reach a breaking point to then go through this larger you know, this. Yeah. event, so to speak. You know what I mean? Whereas if we have these kind of conversations earlier on, maybe, and we can weave just overall higher consciousness into athletic development from an early age, maybe it doesn't have to be a five-year journey, you know, absolutely, or whatever it may be. It can be, oh, it's just something I'm kind of aware of. And these are now just the conversations I'm having every day. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what's been so helpful for me is just sitting, having these kind of conversations with people like yourself. It's like, Holy shit. Yeah. This is crazy. Like Absolutely. I'm not the only one that thinks this way. This is great. No, nope. nope. <laughs> there is a, a collective shift that's happening, um, which is, is really cool. And, you know, Henry Deer Swift or Henry Swift Deer, he's this Native American teacher. And he said one thing back in the day that really just registered with me. He said that, that everybody has a survival dance and everybody has a sacred dance. Mm. While everybody experiences their survival dance, not everyone experiences that sacred dance with life. And 
that willfulness to hold our life together, that willpower to do more, to achieve more, to be more, to strive more, to reach that next level of success. Like it's good, but for a lot of us, it's survival. It's to prove our worth in life. It's to be somebody. It's to show somebody up. It's to show people that we have what it takes. It's to prove that we're worthy of love to the mother or to the father who withheld love to us. It's to show that person who bullied us in high school, like, look who I am now, right? That's a survival dance, right? When we can give up that need to be something or someone that need to be someplace other than where we are, when we can give up the striving, the endless striving and searching, and learn how to really, truly embody this life of radical, wholehearted presence, right? When we learn how to quit pushing the river of our life forward, because we recognize that the river of life is already flowing, and now we're resting in it, and it's taking us, right? It's we're flowing with it. Like, this is how we move into this sacred life, and I think what we can do as individuals is we can embark on our own journeys of transitioning from our survival dance to our sacred dance and the world would be a way better place. I was about to say, you're speaking my language with the water analogies, Van. That's, uh, that's honestly... Oh, yeah, what, swimmer. <laughs> yeah, it didn't, it didn't click for me really until honestly moving out here to LA and this is the first time I've lived near open water. Um, oh, yeah. So... You know, to me, when sport ended, I don't know what it was like for you with football, but for me, I I didn't really want to look at a pool because mm-hmm. I I had that unworked trauma that was existing mm-hmm. there. I hadn't achieved at the level that I had really wanted to, so I was hesitant and resistant to dive back into that pain by going back into mm-hmm. the pool. But I found myself going into the ocean here, and, and really. It was the first time that I went open water swimming and I went with a group that a friend of mine put me in touch with down here. And it was really heavy waves, waves after wave, huge, like eight foot waves. And the rest, usually they set up buoys, but the group couldn't put out the buoys because of how rough the surf was that day. And they were like, all right, we're just going to like practice going in and out of the surf, like kind of on your own, like go do your thing. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went through the whole, all of it and I get to the other side of the surf and I was like overcome with this just sense of stillness and peace. Mm, And I looked around, no one else was able to get through the surf that day uh, except for one other guy. And I just felt this instant grounding and connection of like, wow, I just fought through it. But on the other side of it now, there's this stillness. But it really brought me back to just swimming in general is the perfect metaphor to surrendering to flow mm-hmm. of life is when you try to fight through the water, like mm-hmm. it, quite honestly, is one of my favorite things to see like the football players try to swim because they would just try to muscle their way through the <laughs> totally. water. And totally. I'm sitting here like that idiot, like, don't they know they just need to like surrender and float and just be like, mm-hmm. that's the secret. And I'm like, it was a great just reminder to me of like, oh, shoot. I've been forcing, I've been trying to force this, like let me just catch this wave rather than fight through it. That's beautiful, man. That's a great analogy. And that's honestly, that's the the big transition in life is, is moving from that striving to surrendering to allowing the, the, the flow to just to push us forward. It's like we go through these three levels of like, okay, early on when we're 
living with these unconscious patterns dictating our lives. It's like life is happening to us, right? Like why the shit is this happening? All my life is falling apart. I'm the victim, pointing the finger, deflecting, blaming, whatever it might be. Then we get a little bit of work in our heart surgery and then life is happening for us, right? Now we can ask like in the midst of our pain, we're learning how to hold our pain consciously and we're in the midst of life unfolding and falling apart where you can be like, what's, what am I learning? Like, what are you showing me? Oh, that's, that's interesting that I responded that way. Right. So our heart space is opening up our mind awareness and our body space are all coming into alignment as we're understanding the deeper things that are at work spiritually and energetically in our lives. And then that next level, man, of like radical surrender, you know, this, this, this willing to let go of every way that you think your life should have changed, but didn't, Every, you know, person who you think you should be, but you're not, right? When you let go of all of that, you learn how to be here now and it be enough because you've learned how to embody, how to embody with your, with your mind space, your body space, and your heart space are all living open. And you are living this life of wholehearted presentness. You now allow life to move in you and through you. Mm-hmm. And this, I feel like, man, this is heaven on earth. This is what we're looking for. This is, this is how we get back into the flow of life. This is how we manifest the things that we actually are inherently desiring, right? This is how it is. And it takes a radical level of trust, of mm-hmm. surrender, and it takes a radical level of self-compassion, which a lot of athletes are not well-versed in because we just demand ourselves more and more and more, right? So it's, we're playing a whole new game here. We're playing a whole new game with different rules on a different field and different metrics of success. And it's important that we understand that. I like that last little bit too that you just touched on of different metrics. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is something that a lot of athletes struggle with post-sport. It's because now all of a sudden, like there's not that immediate feedback of, well, you went out on Sunday and you had 10 tackles and intercept, like whatever it may be. And that immediately was like, hey, you had a great game. Or let's watch film and let's, mm-hmm. you know, reset and that determines the next step. Like yeah. the inner work, I think really is this opportunity for us to develop our own film study practice in our yeah. life and it, yeah. opening up and allowing that space to listen to your heart is that feedback that we truly need. Mm but it's hard to get started. What would you say for someone listening in that this is totally new for them? What would you say? Step one. Hire a therapist. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think there is something so powerful in learning how to learn Mm self-awareness. This is so critical. Like for instance, let me give you an example of like, we're playing a different game and there's metrics of different, uh, there's different metrics of success in this new inner game. So let's take, I just got back from the gym. You know, I put 315 on the bench rack and I bombed, right? I ain't getting that shit up. (laughs) Where my natural or what once would have been a metric of success is to be able to rep 315, right? I got off that bench angry at myself and internally said, Caleb, you're weak. You're a failure. You're like, you're fucking dumb, right? hard on myself. My new metric of success is learning how to catch myself in those narratives. I was able to pull myself away, observe myself, deploy self-awareness and just simply ask like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're being so mean to yourself right now. Like, why are you being so mean to yourself? Right? So I was able to observe the inner narratives. 
I just succeeded. I didn't meet my benchmark necessarily, but I, in my inner game, just succeeded because I was able to, in the moment where I was feeling very frustrated, I used that frustration as a cue to learn how to deploy self-awareness then, to observe my inner thought life, and to adjust accordingly. Okay. So Viktor Frankl, who I highly suggest, uh, was like one of the first like psychotherapy books that I read a decade ago, A Man's Search for Meaning. He has a beautiful quote out there that basically says, between stimulus and response is choice. Our choice in that between stimulus and response will dictate our life, right? And so a great place to start is learning how to take the cues of life, the stimulus, the frustration, the anger, the depression, the panic, the anxiety, the overwhelm, the stress, which we would naturally want to walk away from or to hide or to suppress or to ignore or to move through as fast as we can. Mm -hmm. We take those cues of our life because they're just cues. They're messengers trying to tell us a story to empower us and to help us reclaim our life. They're for us. They're not against us. And when we learn how to take that stimulus, observe it, right? Before we unconsciously react out of our pain, out of our fear, we've all been there, right? You just like shut down or you get crazy angry and you're very reactive to life, right? We're living out of our pain consciousness, which destroys our life, right? Because we run over anyone and everyone in the way. When we can do this now, we observe those thought patterns is what's happening with those cues. And we can now choose how we're going to respond. You're on the path of reclaiming your life. So this self-awareness between stimulus and response is, is foundational. It's so important. And I would say just learn how to start practicing self-awareness. For me, what that looked like in my life is for almost a year, Corey, what I did was I carried a little blue notebook in my back pocket. And anytime I felt a cue, anytime I felt an uncomfortable emotion come up and surface in my life, I would stop. I would literally stop what I'm doing. I'm not even exaggerating. When I would tell you, I pulled over the side of the road. I would stop wherever I was in the grocery store. I would turn off the TV, whatever it was, and I would record that emotion. What did I just feel? What time is it? What did I just feel? And then more importantly, I would get curious and try... And this took a little practice, but I would ask myself, like, what thought just ran through my head? Hmm. Right? Like when I moved to Canada, everybody thought that I just literally made the biggest mistake of my life. And the fear of running out of money was had a death grip on me. This fear of running out of money because then that means everybody was right and I'm an idiot. That would be the thought that runs through my head when I would feel this emotional overload of overwhelm and stress, maybe even turn into a panic attack, right? Mm-hmm. So what I was able to do is I was able to deploy, practice self-awareness in my life, understand the thought patterns, and then learn how to eventually shift those thoughts and respond to it differently. Because we respond in this self-fulfilling prophecy. Like we have an mm-hmm. uncomfortable thought, we react to it. We hate ourselves for the way we react, which creates more uncomfortable thoughts. We react to it. We hate. So we have to shift the narrative and this is how we do it. Does that make sense? Did I explain myself? Absolutely. Okay, it's, um, I think you just explained, and I'm going to sum it up in using your feelings as a flashlight. Like understanding what what are those emotions trying to tell you, and having that self awareness that that ability to just be still for a second and recognize that space between stimuli and response Mm -hmm. allows you to make that conscious choice. Um, Which I 
absolutely love. That's been an absolute game changer. I want to ask you the fast five, which are like five oh. ra- rapid fire questions we ask everyone here. I can't promise um, you to be fast answers. It's all good. I was about to say, we just say the rapid fire and they usually go long form. It's all good. We're going to shoot for one sentence, one word, but if oh. they go over, no worries. The first one is, what is your go-to podcast you're jamming out to? I know you got a couple yourself. We'll highlight those at the end. <laughs> Man, I just have been listening to... Uh, I grew up as an evangelical, evangelical Christian and so much of my healing journey has been deconstructing God in my life. And lately, I've been just listening to anything that can give me a little bit of language around my own de- deconstruction journey. You know, I don't identify as a Christian anymore. I don't necessarily believe in heaven and hell anymore. And it's a lot of uncomfortableness for me. And so I, anything that helps me put language to what I'm feeling right now. So the liturgist is like kind of a uh, a big podcast for me right now. Nice. I love that. Number two is what's your favorite book that you've read in the last year? Favorite book that I've read in the last year? Oh, God. (laughs) Man, there's been so much, but there's a book called Will and Spirit by Gerald G. May. And it's a heavy book, but I often find myself going back to it in time and time because this is will and spirit. It's the Mm. willfulness and willingness. It's the masculine and the feminine. So philosophically, what does it look like to marry the two? I like that. I'm going to have to check that one out. Number three is what's a quote that you live by? I know you dropped a couple throughout this. Oh man. (laughs) I think it would be there comes a time in your life when moving forward isn't about doing more, but learning how to resist less. I think that's a big one. And two word quote, just grief. Beautiful. What is one thing you can't live without? My wife. Good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Number five, last one. What would you say your one word focus is at this point in time? Flow. You were worried about that being wrapped (laughs) up. That was great. That was great. Caleb, I want to just take a second to acknowledge Mm. you, who you are, just being you. I think that's something that's apparent on not just in this conversation, but everything that I've seen from you. So I just want to take a second to acknowledge that because I know it's not easy. Where can those listening in keep up with you? All of you, the all the podcasts, all the things that you're doing, because it's great stuff. Thanks, man. And thank you. I received that. And thanks for creating this space to have this conversation and inviting me on. I really appreciate it. I honestly have uh, taken a time, some time off from creating content, but my website, calebcampbell.me, you can learn a little bit more about me. Instagram is probably the best place to catch me. I did just start a new podcast called You're Doing a Good Job. And it's really all about kind of what does it look like to expand our lives consciously so that we can become more emotionally aware, present and connected because... Can't help but believe when we become emotionally aware, present, and connected, we unlock our lives. That's beautiful stuff, man. We'll put it all below. Appreciate you. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. Ultimately, when we lean into vulnerability and honoring our heart space, we create so much more room for an optimized life. I challenge you to have one deeper, tough conversation with someone around you this week because we all grow further together. Remember, if you can change your mindset, you can change your life. One thought followed by one action at a time. I will see you all on Monday for a how to optimize and reduce overwhelm in our life.